Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we do our Ontario political roundup with John Best, the founder of the Bay Observer. Strict COVID-19 lockdowns in Shanghai and other cities across China are dragging down the world's second largest economy. In this time of world instability, how is this causing a ripple effect? And how hard is it to change people's minds when it comes to vaccine willingness? It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. As we've mentioned here in Ontario, June 2nd, there will be a provincial election. Uh, there's been a lot of polling that has been going on, a lot of politicking that has been going on and announcements. Uh, and that's where we're going to start with our, our weekly look at uh, provincial politics. And uh, to do that, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program uh, John Best, who is the publisher and founder of the Bay Observer. John, good morning. Thanks for having us on the, uh, with you. I had a very busy day, a day and agenda, I guess, for you, too. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a busy day, and it's always nice to be with you, Bill. Let's talk a little bit about what we've heard, what we've seen when it comes to the provincial government. I know the latest polling seems to indicate uh, that Doug Ford seem, is in relatively good shape, if not a majority, but, but around 40%, which is uh, in, he's in the neighborhood. The story that jumped out at me was uh, from yesterday, where Andrea Horvath, the Ontario NDP leader, uh, has started talking about strategic voting on uh, uh, I, I don't even know if people pay much attention to this thing, but this is usually a topic that comes up in the waning days of a campaign. Now, the campaign hasn't officially even started, and she's talking about strategic voting. You uh, can, is, is that surprising to you? Well, it does surprise me because it looks to me like she's got quite a bit of cleanup to do in her own uh, party uh, to be talking about uh, strategic voting with an eye towards uh, possibly forming a government, I think. I, I mean, I understand from a political sense why it's being done, but um, there, there's some some real tension going on right now uh, in in her party. And, well, uh, we know about Hamilton East Stony Creek, of course, the Paul Miller incident, but uh, uh, we've heard rumblings about insurrection in the ranks for some time, even before that story surfaced. Well, the I think the big story, and the Toronto Star had a had a big takeout on it today uh, with uh, Martin Reg Cohn. Um, in in uh, Toronto writing, uh, one of, somebody who was considered to be something of a star was Kevin Yard. Um, he's a he's a black uh, MPP, and uh, he was challenged in his own writing for the nomination uh, by uh, by an individual, uh, Sandeep Singh, and Singh won the won the race. And uh, so she's been scrambling uh, to explain how that happens. Uh, the other two parties, liberals and uh, conservatives, uh, do not allow challenges to sitting members. Uh, and, and some would argue that that's not democratic either because it, it takes control out of the hands of the grassroots. But I guess the other point is that these writing associations are really almost meaningless now it's not like the 40s and 50s when you know there'd be 600 people show up for a nomination meeting uh, it's very easy for these writing associations to be taken over by a small group who managed to sell three or four hundred memberships and that appears to be what happened in this toronto area writing and and of course the, and so now other members of the ndp black caucus are criticizing Andrea Horvath for for not being more proactive and and preventing this from happening because clearly Mr. Yard was seen as a as a real star uh, in the house he uh, he spoke very well and um, was was extremely popular so she's got that to deal with she's got the Hamilton East Stony Creek issue to deal with and um, if you look at uh, these uh, 338 polls. Uh, I'm not sure how reliable they are, especially this far out, but they're suggesting that in, in Niagara, Hamilton area, uh, she might lose a couple of seats, uh, one of which I think would be Hamilton East Stony Creek. And uh, the other one they're suggesting is the uh, Dundas, uh, Hamilton West Ancaster riding. They're suggesting that it's turning. They're not suggesting it's gone yet. But, you know, so what I'm saying is there's a lot of stuff in her backyard before we start talking about the uh, the provincial campaign. Well, and, and that's the thing that kind of surprised me, and I understand there's going to be some political bombast with a lot of these comments, uh, but in trying to sell this whole thing about, you know, vote NDP strategically, you know, because we have the best chance to win. Uh, I mean, every party says that, I get that, but I mean, she's counting on the fact that all her 40 seats are going to be uh, NDP again, and uh, just from what you're telling me, maybe not. <laughs> 
you know, the, the Miller thing we can get into in a second. I mean, Kevin Yard is a, a, a guy who was, as you say, a fresh face in the last election, a TV personality. He was on the Weather Channel, of course, for a long time uh, before he stepped into the pol- political ring, but a very popular guy. And, and the question, I guess, a lot of the rank and file are asking is, how could you leave one of your incumbents unprotected in a situation like this? Usually, if you've got a guy that wants to get into there, you simply say, well, not that seat. You can run over here, but not there. Uh, but she didn't do that. No, uh, and it's not like, you know, they, 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 there's plenty of writings uh, in the Toronto area. And, and I think in the Toronto area, especially, there's less of this sensitivity about whether you live in the riding or not. That, yeah. that gets overblown at the best of times. I, but uh, certainly in the Toronto area, I think, I think it's easier to find a, an adjacent seat or one that's nearby. So uh, she, she's clearly dealing with some difficulty there. And, uh, you know, the, just the fact that in her own backyard, there's one, one seat that's clearly up for grabs now, another seat that appears to be, uh, you know, going to have a contest. Um, it's, uh, this is not smooth sailing. So when you're out talking about strategic voting, that's, that, that's usually kind of a winner's, um, you know, sort of rhetoric. And I, I'm not sure we're there yet. Um, the, the polling seems to suggest a, a very close second place between the NDP and the and the Liberals. And with that in mind, uh, I don't know how you... It, it's going to be a scramble for the Liberals and the NDP if things stay the way they are now. The wild card is, as I think we discussed uh, at another one of our sessions, is if this COVID thing gets completely out of hand, uh, that could be bad news for Ford. But right now, it seems it's kind of muddling along. Well, I want to get into the, uh, the Hamilton East Stony Creek situation for just a second. I know we covered that pretty extensively, uh, that Miller basically uh, was told that he's out of the caucus, and of course they're not going to sign his papers. Uh, he's making noises now uh, and he wants to run as an independent which is rather interesting. Now, we don't know that for a fact, I guess, until candidates actually register, and we don't know what, what's going to happen there. Uh, it's an uphill battle to run and win as an independent, but this is a guy who won significant margins of victory every time this guy ran. He's a former Stony Creek councillor, of course, uh, pre-amalgamation. Uh, and so he was known in the riding. Uh, he's got strong support from Labour there because he's a, a, a ex-steel worker. Is, is there a chance as an independent here to still hold, hold on to that seat? I think there's a chance, Bill, but but without the party support, uh, I, I tell you this: I think he's going to do damage. Um, this isn't going to be uh, one of these independents uh, that once they get kicked out of the party, they end up finishing uh, right out of the race. He's going to he's going to um, get a substantial vote, um, and I think it's going to make it very difficult for uh, the NDP candidate who's being nominated to take the seat. I, I think it's going to be a vote split, which opens the door for um, for the Liberals and the Conservatives. The Conservatives have already nominated Neil Lumsden, who's a very well-known name in the Hamilton area. Yeah. That isn't a Conservative seat normally, but Brad Clark was elected there um, 20-odd years ago. So, uh, yeah, this this seat is, is opened up, and... Uh, we're hearing rumors that uh, Jason Farr may be the liberal candidate there. And if that's the case, uh, we've got a real race on. And again, something that will pull votes away from the NDP. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah, and, and I know that people are going to say, well, that's left-leaning all the way. Uh, but you mentioned Brad Clark was the MPP there for a while. Uh, Ed Doyle, former TV personality, uh, won there back in the 90s under the Mike Harris government. So they will swing blue if they feel so inclined. Well, and I, and I think it's very much candidate-driven. Uh, Ed Doyle, obviously, with his television background, was well-known. Uh, Brad Clark, with his activism on the uh, tarot dump, uh, became a, a very visible public figure before he ran. So, and, and Neil Lumsden being, uh, you know, a popular uh, former Tiger Cat. And uh, again, you're, you're looking at a very well-known conservative running in a seat that I think is wide open right now. Well, let's talk a little bit about, I, I don't want to s- simply cede first place to Doug Ford just yet, but let's talk about the NDP and the Liberals when it comes to this provincial race. Andrea Horvath is talking here as if, look, at we're the logical choice, we're the official opposition, we already have 40 seats, uh, we all need to do is build on that right now. And And by the way, this is uh, in this game of political X's and O's. She's not talking about winning uh, government. She's talking about blocking Ford's majority, uh, which I guess is uh, kind of a, a 
homage to the fact that, look, he's so far ahead in the polls right now, something drastic would have to happen. But what's surprising to me here is what you just mentioned at the beginning of our conversation. The liberals are neck and neck with them, according to most polling. One's second, one's third, depending on which poll you read. Uh, this is a party that got decimated in the last election. Have they, have they really made that, that much gain right now? Are, the, are they back on people's radar? Um, I, I think they're coming back. I, I don't think they're there yet, and uh, we'll, we'll see what the campaign says. But we all know that in the normal course of events in Ontario, the Liberals are not a seven-seat party. There's a substantial base of support. They've got a new leader. When she talks about let's build on 40, she's got to remember that she's probably half those seats she took from the Liberals. So half of her 40 seats, or we'll have to do the math, but a large number of her seats are seats that were liberal, uh, where people just could not vote liberal again. So I'm not sure that's a build uh, on, on those seats. Those, those are seats that might very well revert uh, to where they were before with, with a new leader. And uh, so I think, I think her challenge is going to be to hang on to the 40 seats she got. And, uh, and if she does lose seats, I think it'll be seats that she took from the Liberals that are now going back to the Liberals. I, yeah, the, you know, we always talk about, you know, people don't vote governments in, they vote governments out. And, and clearly, uh, Kathleen Wynne's best before date was probably about a year and a half before that last election. Uh, and they punished her, and we saw that happen. But it happened to the NDP, too, didn't, back uh, some years ago, though, John. I mean, they got wiped out and didn't even hold party status, too. So, you know, you can come from the brink of disaster and build yourself back up, I guess. You certainly can. The, the question is, can you do it in one election? And, and I think the odds against either the Liberals or the NDP coming all the way back uh, are, are remote. I think any talk of a, of a coalition is, uh, that I, I think, going into an election, talking about a coalition is very, very dangerous. I think if, if uh, Trudeau and Singh had talked about a coalition going into the federal election, there might have been a, a completely different result. And, um, you know, with the, the recent federal, co I'm going to call it a coalition, uh, having taken place, I think that really sours the mood for, a, for one here in Ontario. Um, you know, I think Canadian voters tend to whether they vote for the party it's ahead or not, there's, a, there's kind of a sense that the party with the most seats should probably get a chance to, to, to really govern and, and not be ganged up on before they even get a chance. Right now, the numbers don't say that Ford is even in that territory. He can lose, um, I think, roughly seven seats, uh, seven or eight seats, and, and still have a majority. So... Um, the campaign, of course, will make a huge difference. And I, I think what they're gambling on, to be honest, Bill, is just that there's, we're going to get enough warm weather between now and Election Day that the, the COVID numbers are going to start going down. And once that happens, then what else have you got to complain about? Because uh, well, he sent us all our, our, our driver's license, our driver's plates uh, checks, so everybody's happy about that. They probably could get a little better bottle of wine than they would normally buy, but you know, I mean, it's it's going to be tough to really say what he really massively messed up. Well, and because he's well, he's using the power of incumbency, isn't it? Like you say, of course. Was, if you got the license plate rebate check, you're a happy camper. Uh, they finally signed on to the daycare deal. I, I wondered about the timing of that, but it's there now, uh, and they they can claim at least partial victory for that. Although. Clearly, they had to be kind of dragged kicking and screaming into the deal, but there it is, uh, and that's that's what incumbents can do, right, John? I mean, they just they they hold the the keys to the bank, and they go, okay, we're going to give them this, we're going to give them that, uh, and and it's a wonderful thing to be able to do to try to hang on to government, and that seems to be the card that he's playing right now. Plus, as we found out uh, a few weeks ago. He's playing to labor, which I didn't think we'd ever see. You know, anytime you see a photo op with the, the head of Unifor and, and a conservative prime premier in Ontario, uh, you kind of give yourself a double take, like, is this really happening? But he's appealed to them. He's appealed to, tried to appeal anyway to the Nurses Association. And, and you know, that's playing politics, obviously. But, I mean, it seems to be working for him when you look at the numbers. Yes, he, he's, he certainly looked um, a little more labor friendly than I think anybody thought he would be. The public service unions will never vote for him. Uh, the teachers hate him. Uh, that, that, that will never change. But, um, you know, he's, he's done pretty well with Unifor. Uh, a little uncertainty there now that the Unifor is going through a leadership change. But by and large, he looks like a guy that's friendly to auto jobs. 
So that's really important. So, you know, and now Smokey Thomas is stepping down. And that was the most amazing one for me was when Smokey Thomas, the head of the Public Service Union, even alluded to, he, he didn't say would support Ford in election, but he, he sort of said to his members, well, we got an election coming up and, and Doug's done something that we really like. And, and he sort of left it hanging there. Yeah. Smokey is now stepping down. So uh, how, how much of that? But, you know, there's a message there, I think, for for labor. Ford certainly does not come off as anti-labor uh, the way a Mike Harris did. So yeah. he's he, he's not, um, you know, he's, he's made some ground with labor, and I don't think he's uh, lost any ground that they had before, because uh, certainly the teachers unions and the public, some of the public sector unions uh, have always been against uh, the conservatives. Exactly. So he, John, we, we got to leave it. We got to leave it there. We're just about out of time now. The clock is sure. jumping out on us here. Lots more to come on this, as we, because like I say we haven't even touched on the uh, the official beginning of the campaign yet. So there's a lot more fodder for us to jump into. Thanks so much for this today, John. Just great. Thanks, Bill. John Best, founder and publisher of the Bay Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Some residents of Shanghai have been allowed out of their homes now. Finally, as a city of 25 million eases a two-week-old shutdown triggered by high coronavirus rates. Charles Dilladesma has some stories for us. The easing comes after videos posted online showing what is thought to be people who had run out of food, breaking into a supermarket and shouting appeals for help. The online news outlet The Paper reports about 6.6 million people will now be allowed to leave their homes, while the government says some markets and pharmacies also would reopen. The abrupt closure of most businesses and orders to stay home have left the public fuming about a lack of access to things like food and medicine. Washington's announced all non-emergency U.S. government employees would be withdrawn from its Shanghai consulate. I'm Charles Deledesma. The uh, ramifications of this, by the way, are worldwide, but it's a striking, uh, con- or, I guess, change from what we've seen here when we talk lockdowns in North America. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Dr. Robert Hewish, Associate Professor of the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. Uh, Professor, pleasure to have you back in the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Are you there? Yes. Hi, Bill. Hi. Good to have you with us. Thanks so much, Professor. Thanks There's so, so many numbers here, but I want to you know, put some context to this right now, too. I mean, we've talked about the Chinese economy and the impact it has, frankly, on our global economy because of supply chain issues. But because of the rising numbers of COVID, of the 100 Chinese cities, the largest 100 Chinese cities by GDP, all but 13 of them have imposed quarantine regulations. And we're talking about severe regulations here, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, this is, um, you know, the world is used to, to lockdowns and, and orders of self-isolation for the past two years now. Uh, nothing new about that, but the way that it works in China is that it's done with a very heavy hand to the point where supermarkets, if there is a confirmed case in a, in a grocery store or a shopping mall, authorities have the ability to actually shut that building down with everybody in it for the 14 days. Um, you know, the, the expectation then is that testing units would be set up, sanitation and, and water and, and uh, temporary bedding would be brought in to those buildings. But you're going to run into issues of, you know, who's going to eat what when. And that's, that's a really big challenge. And, and Beijing has not yielded from that policy throughout the entire pandemic. They've, they've kept those really strict quarantine uh, measures in place. And right now, uh, there's one estimate that about 373 million people in 45 cities in China are subjected to some kind of a lockdown. So that's about a third of the population, uh, or and, and around 7.2 trillion in annual gross domestic product is what's going to be impacted by this. So this is a huge, huge uh, impact to China's economy. And again, it's wired why this approach, which is really at odds with what a lot of other countries are doing right now, which is trying to open up to find ways of living with, with COVID. And the question is, why is China still in this very heavy-handed approach? And the answer to that really comes down to, to two measures. One is the ability to have this extensive public health surveillance, which the, the government there is equipped for. And secondly, it's also a lack of efficacy within their own vaccines. 
So China is not receiving the, the international vaccines uh, from Pfizer, Moderna, even Astra. It's their, their made-in-China uh, vaccines are not holding up at all against Omicron right now. Uh, and that's what we've heard, that the, the, the BA2 uh, strain right now, and the, these vaccines that the Chinese have developed are, are basically useless. Uh, but to the extreme here, when you talk about quarantine, though, Robert, and this is the thing I think blows people's minds, uh, they're basically being told, stay in your apartments. Uh, you know, many people, of course, live in high-rises in a city the size of Shanghai. Uh, and they actually have police officers, I guess, patrolling the hallways to make sure nobody goes out. Uh, we heard stories about people going yeah. out in their balconies and screaming, we're starving. Uh, and the Chinese government responded by saying, stay off your balcony. They didn't just say, we have food for you. And this, this is a rather dire, rather dire circumstance for the residents. Yeah, absolutely. And, it's, and it shows just how far Beijing is willing to take the, the idea of keeping COVID out of the country uh, rather than actually meeting people's own health needs. So we've seen with every sort of lockdown that's, that's occurred through the pandemic is that quarantine measures are are ultimately ancient methods of public health. I mean, they, they go back to biblical times, and we know that they you cannot keep a virus out even through the strictest of quarantine. Uh, you can slow down its spread. You can slow down the progression of it. But ultimately, those viruses and those variants will find a way to, to get to wherever they can. Uh, it's just a matter of time. So when we see these measures put in place, there's always a group of people who benefit and always a group who loses. And so we're seeing right now in China that the, the, the notion of staying with a, uh, a COVID zero approach is what they're saying in Beijing is so strong. It's such a rallying cry that if people are going to be neglected for the basics, including uh, food and clean water for up to two weeks, that's a sacrifice now that the government in China is willing to take on and respond to. And, and that's, that's probably a, a big miscalculation for, for Mr. Chi and some of his public health officials because we're, we're talking about millions and millions, hundreds of millions of people who are affected by this. And, and there's just no way that those health needs can be, can be met during this, this new wave of, of lockdowns. And, and that's one of the things I think that maybe surprised some people anyway. Uh, the lead analyst for the Economic Intelligence Unit uh, says that it looks like Beijing is actually putting public health policy ahead of economic policy, which is surprising to a lot of people. Exactly. It's something that Beijing has said from the onset that by keeping COVID out of the country altogether, that China's internal economy would be able to to not just re, be resilient, but would actually excel. Like there were there was estimates of, of, of growth of five percent uh, economic growth in China. Well, most international analysts are saying that is not going to happen because where the lockdowns are taking place and just between Shanghai and Hong Kong, you're going to have such disruptions in shipping in, in those two areas right there, that's not going to be able to, to be uh, uh, you know, to leading towards those goals. But more to the point, you know, China, from all of its ambitions in terms of economic growth and expansion, is still very much dependent on a few key industries or a few, few key items, and it's still steel. They, they need to have the, the international trade open for, for steel imports, which they, which they don't have. Steel and aluminum are, are scarce resources within China. And without that, that expansion just is not going to take place. So we're already seeing, like you mentioned earlier, some of the supply chain issues starting to creep up. Uh, there are manufacturers who are making parts for iPhones in China that are saying, we are not going to meet uh, our, 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 our deadlines on this. This is going to be delayed. So if there's new, new smartphones that are expected to come out in 2022, you can expect a delay on that. And once the ports in Shanghai and once the, the shipping around Hong Kong starts to get delayed as a result of this, the knock-on effect is going to be massive throughout 2022. So it's, it's going to be uh, you know, something where we're going to see China really have to spin around its message about just how much growth and prosperity is going to come to the country in its supposed great year of 2022. Uh, with, with these public health measures in effect and how many people are going to be uh, very much disrupted and disturbed by the severity of them, it, it's not going to be a, a politically smooth time for Beijing coming up. 
And the supply chain issue, as I understand it, is kind of two-pronged. I mean, there's the, the internal and, of course, the global aspect of this. And you mentioned about Shanghai particularly. Uh, that's the world's busiest container port. And we all know about containers being shipped overseas. We, we started to see those supply chain issues uh, earlier this year. You know, why, where are my parts for my phone, et cetera? They got to be stacking up on the on the, on the the someplace or on the docks because they, they can't ship. I mean, we just talked about a lockdown in Shanghai. That includes the workers who are supposed to be at work on the docks right now. Exactly. And, and when, that, when that starts to happen, uh, you know, because of the products are, are literally on the docks, it's not like there can be a transfer of production immediately. It's not like we, could, we can quickly say within four months we can have a replacement factory uh, up and going in the Philippines or, or in another area. It's, it's too complicated for that about how those inputs chains work in terms of, of getting the products manufactured and then the outgoing uh, chains from there. So we, we saw just how sensitive shipping has been during the pandemic. And any time that China has gone into these lockdown phases, the, the impacts around the world have been, have been felt. So usually in the summer months, spring and summer months in North America and Europe is a time when people start building and they start uh, doing projects and they start buying new cars and new items like this. And I think we can expect to see Car dealerships continue to be a bit sparse. Uh, building materials to also be in, in tight supply. Uh, one area where I can think right away where this is going to impact will be uh, heat pumps and air conditioners. Uh, you know, there's always uh, you know, new programs being put out to try to encourage people to, to, to create more efficient means of cooling their homes. And a lot of those parts, a lot of those uh, uh, supply uh, needs are coming from China and they're not moving. That's just that's just where it's going to be. The other aspect, as I mentioned, is is the uh, the domestic uh, concerns about supply chain. Uh, and as I understand it, I guess a, a lot of the the supply chain movement there is done overland. Uh, I guess that would be highways, uh, trains, etc. And again, that's going to be impacted by lockdowns. Uh, we're hearing stories about truck drivers facing frequent checks, unpredictable testing, uh, the threat of quarantine, which means get off the road, you can't even travel here. Uh, goods are not getting from city to city, let alone out to the ports where they can be shipped. Yeah, exactly. And when you when you have that challenge uh, within the country, especially within the cities, where you're going to feel the most will be in the grocery store. So fresh fruit, fresh meat, any sort of dairy products, uh, any any sort of perishable foodstuffs uh, within inland China is going to be very vulnerable towards these these checks. I mean, and it's it's tight tight transportation schedules they have there if there's a delay on a on a truckload of pork going between two major cities it doesn't take much time for it to spoil uh the the trucks can only stay refrigerated for so long and there's only so many access routes in and out so i think right now we're we're gonna see uh the well basically the diet changing very very quickly in some of these lockdown cities it's gonna be it's gonna be dry goods and preserves fresh fruit, uh, and then, of course, medicines on top of that are also as vulnerable. Um, but what we see is that the ability for officials in Beijing to be very heavy-handed and not allow any exemptions uh, to, to the truckers, even in North America and Europe, when these lockdowns were going on, there was always uh, the exempt workers. There were those people who were, who were responsible for taking goods across borders, even when they were effectively closed, because we, we needed it. And in China, it's like, well, you're going to have to put up with this sacrifice for the next two to three weeks, and it could mean the the expiration of, you know, millions of pounds of poultry and pork and 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 dairy and other fresh fruits just going down the the toilet and not being used, and and that's going to have a huge impact as well. So I think this year was supposed to be the the year of, of great glory for China. It's going to be one of big descent, especially in a lot of the urban areas. Are they winning this battle with with COVID with the the, the BA two uh, variant like that? Are the numbers going up or down? I mean, with all the the extreme measures they're taking, I guess they're hoping for some level of success. Yeah, and right now it's still surging upwards. I mean, I think the 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 number of people who are in lockdown right now is extremely high. We can expect that to at least hold for another few weeks before it starts to come down, and until the vaccines in China begin to to catch up with the new variants in some way, there, there's going to be a continued battle on this front. There, there's no way that Chinese government is going to be able to start to, to backtrack 
on its heavy-handed measures until people are able to have some sort of resilience to the virus. Now, the other argument to be made is that as the virus spreads, there will be more resilience throughout the, the population. And, and, you know, what will that look like? The, the challenge to that, of course, is that the virus continues to mutate, continues to vary. Uh, there's, you know, how many mutated protein strains are already on the COVID virus right now? Will that continue to, to evolve and continue to allow for reinfection? A lot of infectious disease experts are expecting, yes, it will. This is something that's not going to go away. And to have this zero COVID approach continue on in, in China, the way that it's being measured out, uh, there's just no way that it's sustainable in the long term. There's going to have to be a reexamination of the policy, at least domestically, to get those goods moving uh, across the country, let alone around the world. Has there been any consideration at all to maybe look at some of these outside vaccines, the the, the Pfizer's and Moderna's, et cetera, or are they just simply going to say, no, what we got is what we want? It's a tricky one because within China, there's a, quite a bit of capacity for vaccine development. Um, and we saw that some of the earliest uh, vaccines that China was working with was actually in partnership with Canadian researchers. Uh, in fact, it was the uh, the, the Sinovac had research team at uh, Dalhousie University back in May of, uh, of 2020. Uh, of course, the, what happened there is the the recipe was sent over to China and it never came back for for, for trial testing. Uh, so there's always a bit of suspicion about sharing the, the the vaccine recipe with with China's biotech sector because there's there's been some poor plays on their part about well. We'll take it and not give it back, which is what what occurred. And the other factor, too, is there's also a record of poor testing within China. So with the early COVID vaccines, they weren't actually uh, tested out in ways that we would in North America accept to be you know, rigorous phase one, phase two testing. They were simply tested out on the military. And so there you're getting one demographic of people, um, young, mostly young men in their 20s uh, who are physically fit being tested with this. And that's just not how... Uh, vaccines are, are or should be should be tested in that way. So there's a lot of suspicion, and I doubt that Pfizer or Moderna, who are sort of leading uh, the, the vaccine rollout around the world, would be willing to cooperate with Chinese officials right now. But that said, the severity of the problem within China may actually may actually push Beijing to re to reexamine some of its old habits and, and, and sort of catch up with what the rest of the world is doing. Is it likely? I'm not too sure, but. If these, lo- if these lockdowns are supposed to continue onward, there could be enough heat and resistance within the country to move it in that direction. Well, how long is this going to impact uh, the global markets? Then? I know we're almost out of time, but a I, I, quick example. Of, mm. You know, when I went and got my, my snow tires put on back in October, I guess it was, you know, my car dealership where I go, I said, where are all your cars? It's good. They're overseas. They're not here. Uh, I'm going to go over next week and get them down. Am I still going to see an empty lot of me because the, the goods are just not moving? Yeah. And, and the thing is, you know, we're, we're going to see that with cars. We're going to see it with, uh, you know, great wines from Australia and New Zealand. We're going to see it from all sorts of, of products that are, you know, right down to our cell phones. Uh, once, once there's delays in that shipping, uh, the knock-on effects are going to be serious and long-term. And, and it just backs right up. It's, it's a real reminder just of just how vulnerable the supply chains are and how much they've, they've become so just in time, so last minute, so rapid, that when there are disturbances of this scale, it can impact many, many industries. So we're probably going to see more empty parking lots. We're going to probably see some, some products and shelves just being absolutely absent for, for weeks on end. And then suddenly, once the ship arrives in L.A. or Vancouver, then we start to see those supplies coming back in. But it's, it's another reminder back to, to also recognize that uh, the exporting of goods into China right now is also quite vulnerable. So I'm thinking about some of the agriculture producers in Canada, uh, fishers in, in Atlantic Canada, for example, were really banking before the pandemic on big prices of lobster and shellfish going into China. Well, now that's not guaranteed because that can be shut down in, in a minute. And, and that's been done in the past where where those products have been put into forced quarantine and there's been millions lost as a result of it. So I, I think though it's going to be a, a scenario where if, you, if you're planning on purchasing something, you know, get it sooner rather than later. Exactly. Professor, uh, always a pleasure to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for spending some time with us this morning. Oh, it's my pleasure indeed. Thanks so much.
Take care. Professor uh, Robert Hewish, of course, from uh, Dalhousie. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. When uh, Doug Ford uh, lifted the mask mandate, brother, a couple of weeks ago now, uh, said, look, we still have to follow the other public health uh, measures. And uh, Dr. Bohr mentioned that just the other day when he had his uh, presser for us as well. Uh, and that includes, he says, getting vaccinated. If you aren't fully vaccinated, get vaccinated. If you haven't even been vaccinated, well, maybe you should consider that. So what are the chances about changing people's minds about vaccinations and to get vaccinated at all or to, to go the full ride and get all the vaccinations they need? I always wondered that because they've always told us that that's what really should be happening. You know, let's be open-minded. Let's like leave the door open for the people that haven't been vaccinated, and and maybe we'll just you know try to bring them along so that they'll change their minds. Well, there's a study been done about this, and uh, it's uh, done by McMaster University and McGill University. Uh, it's a study that's published now in the American Journal of Epidemiology, and it analyzed data from nearly 24,000 middle-aged and older adults enrolled in the Canadian Longitudinal Study on Aging. Here to tell us about the study and uh, what we found out about it is uh, Dr. Parminder Reina, who is the professor in the Department of Health Research, Methodology, Evidence and Impact at McMaster University, also the scientific director of the McMaster Institute for Research on Aging. Uh, Doctor, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much, Bill, for having me here. It's, it's one of these interesting ideas here about exactly what uh, needs to be done with next steps. And, and I completely agreed with the chief medical officer that we've got to get more people vaccinated. But, you know, then the, the, what I hear back from an awful lot of them, doctor, is, look, it, we're already at most 90 percent here in Ontario. We're doing better than most jurisdictions in the world. Isn't that enough? Is it? Uh, I think that that's an important message that majority of the population uh, has gotten vaccinated, especially uh, the age group that we were uh, looking at, people over the age of 50. and But there is a small proportion of people, around 6% or so, who even made up their mind prior to even vaccines becoming available that they were not going to get vaccinated. And that has been a hard one to convert. And I think partly it is because of the misinformation or their trust in the safety of vaccines. And I think from a public health point of view, uh, we have to do a better job in getting the right information in the hands of those people because this is one segment of the population that we studied and and, and the, the unvaccinated numbers are a little higher if we look at the whole uh, population of Ontario or Canada. And now those, those individuals who are unvaccinated, if they get infected, does have implications for other people who are at risk of getting COVID or other uh, impacts it, it has on the healthcare system as we start to see more hospitalizations or we start to see admissions to ICU, it has secondary consequences on what other type of healthcare that might have to be delayed because our hospitals are occupied with people who get sick. So we have done very well as a country, as a province in relation to the vaccination rates. And, and we just have to get over the hump because it is not just about the COVID vaccine. This is the same group of people who also don't uh, go for uh, influenza vaccines. And, and, and what we have seen in this study, it is the same set of predictors that people who are willing to get vaccinated for influenza vaccines are the people who are agreeing to get vaccinated for, for uh, COVID vaccine. And the people who are not interested in any vaccines are also hesitating in getting uh, vaccines related to COVID. And it is a subset of the population. It tends to be younger, 50 to 59, tend to be female, tend to be living in rural area or low education. It's not necessarily these people are against vaccine. I think we just have to do a better job of getting information that convinces these people that the majority of these vaccines know almost a year and a half after they have been introduced are relatively safe vaccines and really prevent hospitalization and serious illness from this infection. To that point though, doctor, and I, I concur by the way, I, I, listen, if I could, I would have been the first one in line to get the vaccine. And I've, I've done the whole ride here. I, I have to get the booster. I'll do that next week. I've already got a scheduled appointment. So I'm, I'm, I'm on your, I'm on your side. I'm, I'm part of the choir here. Uh, but what can you say to these people that they haven't already heard that might change their minds? Um, well, I think there's also a lot of competing misinformation out there. And and if we look at the types of individuals who are not willing to get, at least based on some of our data, it's a small proportion, 
it tends to be younger. Maybe they're busy, they're working. They don't have easy access to going somewhere and getting vaccines. As you know, and I know, I've been vaccinated. Sometimes I had to spend hours to figure out where I can get an appointment to get mm-hmm. vaccine. How do we make it easy for those people? Because some of them are probably working two or three jobs because these are people in the low income group. So I, I, I don't think it is all that they don't want to get vaccinated. There might be other reasons they are not getting vaccinated. So we have to sort of make it easy for people to get uh, access vaccinations. That's one thing. There will be some people because it, it sort of seems like from uh, our data that it might be subgroup of populations who have arrived in Canada from different parts of the world where they have probably have a little less trust in the government and what the government says. So we, we as a public health professionals have to do a better job in creating that trust in this population. So I think there's still a lot of tailored things we can do. We have seen it from other vaccine campaigns, not just the COVID, but the influenza and other vaccines. When you actually reach out and do the grassroots approach to improving the uptake of vaccine, it does work. And I think that's what we need to do. There will be one or 2% of the people or 3% who will never change their mind. That's okay, it's their right, they're, they're privileged to not get the vaccine. But the people who are could be converted into getting vaccinated, I think we should do a a better job at uh, tailoring our message to those groups of people. For somebody like yourself that's uh, dedicated their lives, and uh, as as so many of your colleagues said towards this, uh, are you concerned at all that there seems to be almost a, 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 I don't want to say growing, but certainly a a, a pretty steadfast group of people that are skeptical of public health and don't believe everything you tell them? I think I'm, I'm, I don't have any data to say that they are a growing number. They, they, this group of people, they are always being like that. And, uh, and I, I think the messaging here should be that we don't need to put a blame on these people. We just have to do a better job in getting information and converting these people to thinking about how prevention can make a difference in, in, in our lives, not only from vaccination, prevention in general. And I, 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 I'm a strong believer that just saying that these people are not doing it, that there's something wrong with them. I think that's the wrong message. We just have to take more information, more knowledge to them and see how we can convince uh, groups of people who are hesitating at this point in time. And, and I, think, I, I, I think the other message here is that as we see in the media and the news that we are only 50 to 3 or 54% of the people have gotten their booster vaccination. And we know that just getting the first, first and the second dose is not enough. We also have to think about getting uh, the booster uh, as well to protect ourselves going forward because uh, immunity does go down with time. That's the nature of this type of uh, vaccine and the infection that is circulating. And we are seeing the numbers creeping up again. So. It's not just the first timer. We also have to think about people who have to get boosted to protect themselves. So again, we have to motivate people, give people information, trust people are smart. They will make the right decisions. And most people do make the right decision that our data indicates that almost 90% of the people are did get vaccinated. And I, I think we just need to keep working hard and trying to uh, change people's mind in getting vaccinated. So let's talk about that now, yeah, I, I agree totally with the, the whole concept of this uh but is one of the reasons why as you said some people haven't even had their booster shots yet uh maybe even haven't had their second shot uh, there seems in in many people's minds at least i'm hearing from social media posts and the people that email into the program here doctor a lot of them think hey the game's over we've we've won COVID is is in the rearview mirror right now and look at they lifted the mask mandate all the uh, restrictions are gone most of them anyway some cities, municipalities, are already you know, shutting down their their vaccination clinics, and just and it it seems to be sending a message here that okay, the worst is over. You're cool now, and and that, that I think, especially what Dr. Bohr told us the other day, we're not cool yet. I mean, this this variant is still very contagious, and it can still cause some damage. I absolutely agree. I don't think it's uh, it's going to go anywhere in a, in the near future. This is with us for a. Uh, uh, certain period of time, and and we are seeing based on some of the wastewater wastewater testing, the numbers are at a population levels are creeping up quite uh, quite a bit. So 
we still have to be cautious uh, because what we, because we got one dose or two doses doesn't mean we are going to be protected the rest of our lives. That's not how vaccines work. They do have a certain time window, and after that, we do have to get vaccinated. That's why we get influenza vaccination every year because it doesn't last forever. And I think that's the same principle applies here. And and I think that we we public health professionals, politicians, other leaders in the community have to keep giving the consistent message that this is not over. It is still with us. It's circulating. It is fairly infectious, maybe not as dangerous. Partly it's not dangerous because a large proportion of people have been vaccinated. And the people who are not vaccinated, if they get infected, they do have uh, serious consequences related to that. So I think we need to keep ha hammering that message. Uh, I, If I was advising anyone, I would actually have kept the mass mandate going uh, forward but i think that that there is a there's a growing concern about that that we do have to keep some of the public health measures in place uh, so we can have some level of normalcy in our life and also protect ourselves at the same time how do you battle the misinformation let's talk about that because there are some as you mentioned some wild stories that are going out there that people just seem to cling to and gravitate and say aha uh, and you've heard many of them, I know, that, you know, the uh, one young lady I know that talked to me about a year and a half or so ago said, well, you know, I, I read that uh, if I'm thinking of getting pregnant and starting a family, I shouldn't have the vaccine. Well, that, that wasn't true, but it was out there and people heard about that. Uh, and there's so many other falsehoods that are out there right now that pe that people say, well, so, you know, I saw that. I saw that article about that. I saw this on the website, so it must be true. Right. I, I think th I actually don't know how you can combat uh, misinformation, because people who access this misinformation, they somehow believe the source of this misinformation. And I think that's that's a big challenge for all of us. I think only thing we can do is continue to uh, engage in dialogue with people who are believe this type of misinformation, listen to their viewpoint, not ignore it. I think that's a, probably a mistake to ignoring people's viewpoint and provide what the right information is. At the end of the day, people do have to make choices. Uh, it's their choice, their personal uh, choice in, in, in choosing what to do. But I think we need to keep hammering uh, what the right information is. And I also, as I said earlier, I don't think the blame game is the right way to go at it. I think we just need to have a civil dialogue with people who do believe this information, there is a certain group of some certain proportion of people, you will never change their mind. That's what they are going to believe. That's fine. I think we just, if we sort of get into this type of a discussion, which is you're wrong and we are right, it's not productive. I think we, we need to keep the information out. We need to get the information out and have a very civil open dialogue about the differences and the similarities of what we are thinking and, and what we uh, want to achieve in this process. Well, we've seen this happen before, not necessarily even in medical terms. Uh, in the absence of information uh, comes speculation, and some people tend to gravitate to that. And before we even had the vaccine, there was all sorts of speculation about what it might do, what it might be like, uh, and, and whether or not we'd even need it. I'm sure you've heard, as I have, a number of people that said, look, I had COVID back in those early days, and thank God I survived it, but I don't need a vaccine now because I have enough antibodies built up. We know that's not true. But that's what their mindset is right now. So I guess information that we've attained, because uh, we all didn't know much about the vaccine when it came out. And I, uh, this has been a learning process for all of us. Yes. And, and I think you're absolutely right. And I think there's partly, I think, some level of responsibility the way we communicated this at the earlier stages. The, the messaging was, wow, we are going to get this vaccine developed and out in the market in less than a year and a half. And people got worried, how can you get vaccines out that quickly? And what are the safety issues related? Because that's one of the biggest concerns that uh, people have. But we didn't communicate well that there has been a decades of research behind these types of vaccines. These the research was there. It was the approval and the production and the testing in clinical trials that we did it in last year and a half. And there was a massive global effort to get these things done, which probably doesn't happen under normal times. It takes time to get funding to set up a clinical trial. It takes time to recruit people and assess the uh, effectiveness of the vaccines. 
But it is not true that this research was all new. The research in these areas was happening for decades, and we knew all about some of the basic principles of this research. And I think we didn't communicate that part of it that well. And as researchers, as clinicians, as public health people, I think we could have done a better job with that. Well, and we found that to be the case, uh, you know, as, as this started to spread and became a pandemic. Uh, it's a coronavirus, and coronaviruses are not new, are they, doctor? No, we have all sorts of different coronaviruses, but this particular type of a coronavirus is new. And, 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 and as a result, of course, as you say, because uh, I, I know we talked to a number of people. I mean, I was around covering the uh, the SARS epidemic a number of years ago, uh, and, and the, there was research going on about coronavirus vaccines back then, too. It's been going on for quite some that, time. Exactly. And this is not a area because basic research that happens in this uh, in this area has been going on for a long time. People have been trying to figure out and technology was already there. It just had to be adapted to this particular strain of virus that we saw earlier on. And we continue to evolve uh, the vaccines based on as the new variants come in. And I, I think that the science has been very robust in this area. I should mention, by the way, because I don't want to leave people with the wrong impression, uh, since we're just about ready to uh, close out here. Uh, when I said that some cities, including Hamilton, by the way, are starting to close down their public clinics, that doesn't mean the vaccine's not available. It is. Uh, oh, it there is. are so, lots of other places. You can go to your pharmacy, your family exactly. doctor. There are lots of other places to get that. I don't want to think people, okay, I don't, I can't get it now. That's not, that's no, not no, the no. case. I think vaccine availability is all over the place, at least in Hamilton, where I live. A lot of pharmacies have uh time slots available for people to book and get vaccines done and i i think you can even uh go through some of their hospital settings where people can get mm -hmm. some of the uh, vaccines so it's available i don't think it has been completely shut down at all some very very yeah yeah there's a, but we know that and of course as you mentioned uh, even if you've had the three doses uh get the fourth uh, you know it's out there right now it's, if you fit the demographic and uh let's make sure that everybody stays safe uh very very important information about this study doctor thank you so much for the great work that you and your colleagues have done and thanks for spending some time with us this morning i really appreciate it thank you very much bill for having me here Take care. Dr. Parminda Reyna, uh, professor in the Department of Health Research and Methodology and Evidence at McMaster University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.